Welcome back to For Folk's Sake. My name is Paige, and this week we're talking to a repeat guest, Atia. Atia is the CEO and founder of AgCan Consultancy, where she helps her clients optimize their cannabis plant health and performance. So a couple months ago when we had Atia on, we were able to gain a more encompassing understanding of the entire cannabis process. And today we got to go into a little bit deeper into the nuances of the cannabis process and what having a global cannabis market would actually look like. It was so fun to get to catch up with Atia. She's doing so many amazing things. I won't ruin any surprises now. So you'll have to listen to the episode to find out what she's been up to. But she's absolutely amazing. She's always open to answering questions that just kind of come out of my curiosity and I'm very appreciative of her and her time. So without further ado, it's your turn to learn episode 46. Atia, welcome to For Folk's Sake. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, Before we get started, if people haven't listened to your previous episode, can you do just a quick self-introduction and then everyone can know how amazing you are? Uh, yeah, my name is Atia. I'm an international cannabis consultant. I run my own consulting company with a fantastic team of plant scientists and super experienced cannabis people. I travel all over the world. I'm in Switzerland, actually, as of right now. And um, I just get to help all these cool cannabis production companies develop their products and improve their operations and do cool stuff like cannabis tissue culture. So yeah, loving life and uh, living all over the world right now. Oh my gosh, but you still are based in Canada. Is that right? Yes, I actually have an update because I'm moving to Barcelona in April. So I will be based straight out of Europe for the next year or two. You are? Oh my gosh. How did that happen? Well, I'm spending about six to eight months in Europe anyways right now. So flying back and forth with the time zone changes, it's been it's been a lot. I was flying back every six to eight weeks between Canada and Europe, which is a six hour time zone change. And I said, you know what? I can be based anywhere because I have to travel to see my clients. So why not live where the majority of my clients have the same time zone? Wow. Oh my gosh. Was that a hard decision to come to or you just feel like it was like the natural step of evolution for you? I felt like it was a natural step. Like I've always dreamed since I was like probably in my teenage years of moving to Europe and this kind of like romantic, like European, you know, life that I always like thought I would have one day. And then the opportunity presented itself. And so I talked to my partner about it and he knew that I wanted to relocate. And he was like, okay, let's do it. So we're packing everything up. So me, him and the cat, and we're moving to Barcelona in the springtime. Yay, the cat. Oh, the cat's going to miss your neighbor. Oh, the cat has to come. Everyone kept asking me, they're like, oh, are you sure you want to move him? And I was like, there's no way I could be away from him for a year. Like I I couldn't mentally handle that. So um, we're getting him nice and ready. So he's going to be a little Spanish kitty. So we're, we're practicing, you know, a little Spanish words with him right now. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm so excited. I'm honestly really jealous. I mean, I'm excited for you, but I feel like I to have that like romantic view of Europe and I want to go so bad. My friend and I always send each other TikToks about like POV, you and your best friend just moved to London for a year because we're like, we don't want to go somewhere where they don't speak English because we're like scared of a like (laughs) communication barrier. Um, you know what? Like I've been in Switzerland. So for the last year and a half, basically 50% of the time I've been in Switzerland with one of my clients here. And it's very German speaking. I don't speak any German at all. I've caught on to a couple words now. I can read a menu in German, which is the most important thing is learn your food words first. But you would just be like, so English is so common in so many places. Barcelona in particular is a huge expat hub. So getting by with English, and I've, I've visited there a couple of times, it's no problem. It's definitely a, a com- uncomfortability because you realize that you have to be in like awkward situations where you 
can't fully express yourself or the person's not really grasping what you're saying. Um, but it's also for me, that's kind of a part of the fun. I, I know a little bit of Spanish and I'm going to have to learn to be basically fluent in that year. Oh my gosh. It's good though. Cause you're just throwing yourself into it. There's no better way to learn than like immersion. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a huge update of what you've been up to. You've also been hitting the gym. I see your Instagram going hard. Yeah, I decided like this year was going to be the year that I actually committed to it. I've definitely been one of those people that works out really hard for a week or two and then gets completely distracted or super bored and decides I don't want to do it anymore. But I'm focusing on health this year. I have a mixed connective tissue disease, which is an autoimmune disorder. So I'm hoping that all of the exercise, healthy eating and really just living a super clean lifestyle will help keep all of my flare ups under control. Oh, that isn't that such a great thing where it's like you, you one can think about the vanity of like working out and being like, I just want to look good. But then when it's also benefiting your health, like your physical health in a way too, you're like, okay, this is kind of like a necessity. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely looking forward to like being you know, very toned in a bikini at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, like having it just kind of improved so many things, just, you know, my sleep habits, my, my mood has been more stable, I don't really feel like, you know, groggy in the morning when I get up all those kinds of small little things have been really fantastic. And I've only been doing it now for a couple of weeks, but um, I love it so far. And I could see myself keeping up with it for the rest of the year. Oh, yeah, you set up quite a good like accountability too, which I think is necessary to have someone to kind of like be on you about like, hey, like, did you get your workout in today? Yeah. So basically when I, uh, each week I'm asking people if they've done their workouts and if they haven't, I'm like tagging them and telling them they owe me something, you know, like two, like 10 burpees, three minutes of planks, whatever it is. And so my friends are now working out and tagging me in their stories as well. So I can see that they're doing their workouts at the same time. Oh my gosh. Calling people out. You're like, I'm going to, you're not even DMing them. You're just tagging them in like a public story. Yep. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. So I have a couple topics I want to talk about today, but before we get um, too into them, I was wondering if you don't mind taking us through the process of like seed to sale, just so we can familiarize everybody with what the process is of, you know, a cannabis little leaflet all the way to like what they would see in a dispensary. Yeah, so there's a couple of options when you're looking at your starting material, you can do the kind of classic system, which is to take a clone, which is a small section of a cannabis plant off of a mother. So your mother is a plant that's kept in a perpetual vegetative state, she never goes into flower, she's always just there kind of producing clones for you to use for your next generation. The other option is to go straight from seeds. Um, that's actually a more traditional option in larger agriculture. So thinking of tomatoes, and most of our commercial crops, they come straight from seeds, it's hard to find stable genetic lines that way. So it's not as common in cannabis. And then the last option, uh, which is one that I love so much is doing tissue culture. So that's actually producing new plantlets in a cell culture and or an in vitro setting and then using those to bring them down into production once you've got your clones from you know either of those three strategies you basically put them through a propagative phase of about two weeks long you're trying to get them to root uh, develop a little bit of vigor they then go through a vegetative stage where they stretch to almost their full height they're starting to become a little bit more bushy and get some more body to them and then at that point in time when we feel our vegetative phase is done between two and four weeks we flip it to flower and what that means is changes in climate and in particular the light setting. So we're now reducing the day length from let's say 24, 18 hours down to 12. This is supposed to mimic what would happen in the wild when your cannabis plants would go through, let's say a summer phase of a lot of light and start to approach fall where they have less light cycle. Through the flower phase, we're going to bulk up a little bit. We're going to get all those amazing, beautiful, juicy cannabis flowers, which is the end product that we all love, purchase and use. Um, and then after a period of, you know, depending on eight to 
12 weeks, depending on the variety, it's time to harvest. And what we're looking for during harvest is the maturation of trichomes, which are, if you look at a cannabis bud, the bit of it that looks like almost icing sugar on top of it. And we're also looking for the pistils, which is the hairs on the cannabis plant to be a bit more mature and take on an amber color. Once we harvest it, we go through a process of drying and curing and trimming, depending on your post-harvest cycle. And that's what ends up in our finished product. Wow. You, you know your stuff. (laughs) I was waiting for you to talk about trimming and add in that it's like the worst process of it all. Oh my God, it is. I remember like helping friends trim their crops like from their backyards or, you know, they're maybe less than legal grows and it being like this most slow, painstaking thing. But now that I work with a lot of really large scale producers, we use automated trimming equipment. So the brand I use most often is uh, Twister. And I know that company really well. It's based in Canada and they've got like a massive trimmer uh, for my large commercial clients that does like 225 kilos an hour of wet cannabis. Um, yeah, so it's quite a bit of product. So uh, we're actually having another one installed here in Switzerland, and I'm going to be overseeing that. So um, it's not as much of a pain when it's all automated, but definitely hand trimming is probably my least favorite thing to do when it comes to cannabis. Oh, yeah, definitely. If you are using an automated trimmer, do you use less trichomes during the trimming process if it's wet? So the reason why a lot of people wet trim is yes, like the bud is a little bit more malleable and the trichomes don't take as much of a beating. When product is dry, it's really sensitive. And especially if it's a little bit too dry, um, that can really cause a lot of breakup in an automatic trimming situation. So you can trim wet or dry. It's entirely up to you. I always prefer wet trim when I have very large scale clients because it allows me to do a more even dry down or drying the buds on trays as opposed to trying to dry the whole plant when we do a dry trim. So um, that's one of the major differences and drying styles. If you're going to do a dry trim, people will normally take the entire plant, cut it, flip it upside down and hang it on a wire or a rack. And so throughout the dry cycle, we not only have to pull the moisture out of the buds, but also the actual stem structure and then trim it after the fact. But when we do a wet trim, we'll normally take all the buds off the plant while it's still wet, which is again, a process called bucking that is much easier when it's wet because the plant can take the beating from an automatic bucker without damaging the product as much. And then we put it through the trimmers and then we put it on flat trays to dry. And in that case, I'm only drying down the bud material. So it's actually less biomass overall to dry down. I find it's more consistent. Um, If you're looking at more of the craft or smaller style growers, they will almost all do the classic hang dry. And then a lot of the commercial or more medical large scale producers tend to lean towards the wet trim and the tray dry. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Do you what do you feel like is the biggest benefit from using cannabis? Oh man, there's so many. Um, I, I, yeah. Impossible question. um, I was definitely a recreational user in high school and how I started using cannabis was a friend of mine. I had a lot of anxiety. I'm just a perfectionist, just my nature. And if I wasn't doing, you know, a hundred percent in a class or wasn't doing extremely well, I would get very upset about it and I would get very anxious and I would break out in hives. And so I was actually tutoring a friend of mine in math and she was like, you should try cannabis. And I was like, for purely scientific reasons, I will try this because I'm a scientist. we're gonna see what happens. And I tried it. And I, you know, I found that it just made me so much less anxious. And that's not the case for everybody. And it's also not the case for you, depending on what strains you use and your mindset and a few other things. But for me, that was the first reason why I was using it quite often through undergraduate university and things like that. Now that I'm out of school, and I don't really feel as much, I guess, stress in the academic sense anymore, I still use cannabis very often, but I use it in very different ways. So for me, I take an edible almost every night before bed, something low dose around two milligrams of THC. I've become an edibles fanatic, as you know. So um, I'm always trying new ones. And for me, it helps me sleep better. It helps with any joint pain I have from my condition. It helps me, my body just feels more relaxed. And I love taking it post-workout. So post-workout, I'll usually take a CBD oil or smoke a CBD joint 
it um, it just kind of helps me with the inflammation in my body. So I always say that there really is a cannabis product for everybody, whether it's a high THC, whether it's a one to one THC and CBD or a high THC. And the biggest, biggest problem I feel like in the industry is like there's not enough consumer education because people think if you take an edible, you're going to be sitting on the couch for the next 10 hours questioning your whole entire existence. And that's not necessarily the case if you buy the right kind for you. So I do a lot of like, I guess, cannabis product consulting for my friends, my family, people who meet me at parties, like I will like sequester them in a corner if they ask me and like explain every type of product they could have. And so many people that I've interacted with have come back to me later being like, wow, like now that you've gone through everything with me, and I've tried the products you recommended, I'm completely sold, I'm buying edibles every day. And I'm like, that's fantastic. Like there really is a lot of medical benefit to cannabis and more people need to realize that it is definitely a situation where you have to try a couple of things, but you don't have to get completely zonked if you don't want to. And you can also use products that have no THC in them whatsoever if you don't feel like, you know, being high at all. Right. It's kind of, I always compare it to wine where it's like, you can have one glass of wine and feel relaxed and get that like warm feeling in your legs, or you can drink the entire bottle and be drunk. It's the same exact thing with cannabis. It just depends on how much you take kind of what, well, the thing with cannabis is that then it's more nuanced because there's different types that give more different effect, you know, and I love that you mentioned mindset too. I think that's so important. If you're going to have a mindset that you're going to like get green sick or like freak out once you're high or whatever, like more than likely you are. Yeah. And that's that's true of like many of the drugs that people use. Right. So, I mean, that's definitely something people talk about with psilocybin or mushrooms a lot. They're like, if you're in a bad place mentally or even in a weird situation, you're not going to have a good trip. And it's the same thing with cannabis. And in just in fact, like it's been replicated in many medical studies, but when you do drugs in an area that you're not familiar with, so let's say not your own home or not your own setting, you actually feel the effects a lot more, which is the case why some people overdose when they use drugs in a place, same normal amount they would use, but it's, you know, maybe at a party or they're not familiar with. So it's really important if you're trying cannabis for the first time. And again, you're trying to go for something a little bit stronger, like you're looking to try maybe a 20% plus THC joint or something, do that at home do it with your partner, do it with friends, do not be in an awkward social situation where you aren't already comfortable. Do not do it around strangers where you don't feel like you can be yourself because then you get really self-conscious and awkward. And it's just like set yourself up for success, right? Do your research, pick a good product, make sure everything's, you know, that you could possibly worry about is taken care of and then try to enjoy yourself and just relax. Yes. Trying to enjoy yourself. That's another thing. It's like, this is not supposed to be a stressful process. hundred percent. I mean, people aren't like, you know what I'm going to do? I had a really long day at work. I'm going to get high and then curl up in a ball in the corner and then freak out about life. Like that's not really what most of us use it for. For me, now that I've used it for so many years, I don't really ever have those situations where I use it and I feel uncomfortable because I mean, I can go smoke a joint and walk in the mall in the middle of the day and have like zero concern whatsoever. But you have to work up to that. And if you never get to that point, that's also okay. Some people are strictly at home, They don't like to be around anybody else when they use cannabis. And that's fine. And again, in all of these situations, I'm talking about pretty high dose stuff. If you're taking a two milligram edible, you're probably fine to do pretty much anything. I would equate that to a glass of wine. And one of my really good girlfriends, Mandy, who is definitely going to listen to this episode. um, uh, Hey, Mandy. Hey, Mandy. Um, She's a a mom. She's just had her second uh, child. And her and her husband are always like a little bit apprehensive about cannabis, you know, like, oh, we haven't used it in years. So I started recommending some products for her. And they sent me a video of themselves uh, in their kids room, kids are asleep, and they're playing with their dinosaurs and naming them because they just took some edibles. And they were just saying like, it's such a great experience. It was just the right dose. The flavor was fantastic. And, you know, instead of having that 
couple of beers and a couple of glasses of wine to wind down at the end of the night. This is cheaper. It's lower calories and you have no hangover whatsoever. And I just feel like it's a better alternative if you're looking for an end of the night, kind of just like a little bit of a relaxation aid. Yeah. Oh, a no hangover, I feel like is the huge thing where it's like, this isn't something that is going to make you feel like you can't go to work the next day. Like if anything, you feel like better in the morning. You're like, hey, look at me. I'm back. Back in this part of my brain. Oh, this is fun. (laughs) Yeah. She kept saying how crazy good her sleep was and how she was completely mind blown by that. And I was like, yeah, you just sleep like a baby and it's amazing. Like I feel so refreshed the next day. So I usually take her one or two before bed most nights. And that's been like my ritual while I'm in Canada. Oh yeah. Having a ritual is nice too. It's kind of like if you're going to take a this is my personal opinion. If you're going to be open to taking a pharmaceutical to help your mental health, such if you have anxiety or you have PTSD or depression or whatever, like, wouldn't you feel a little better maybe trying something that comes from the ground first? Yeah. And I think like, I I talk about this all the time, but like the whole stigma around cannabis is just complete nonsense because there is no medical reason why it it's you know was considered harmful or it was illegal there really wasn't any scientific backing to that ruling um there haven't been a ton of cannabis related deaths it's not something that there is an extremely high addiction rate for you can be addicted to anything but cannabis is not as addictive as alcohol cigarettes like many other things that we have you know deemed perfectly safe for consumption and the funniest thing for me is like i worked at a cannabis facility and a lot of the ownership team really thought that anybody who used cannabis was you know in the negative connotation of stoner And if they found out at work that you used cannabis, they looked at you completely differently. And these are people that go home every night and drink a bottle of wine. And I'm like, I don't understand what the difference is between you doing that, which is much worse for your body than somebody going home and enjoying cannabis, you know, either, you know, both people just be non-judgmental, ideally, but if you're going to look at what's better for you, it's actually better to just smoke a joint than to drink a whole bottle of wine every night. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. That's so funny how someone can be like completely blitzed out of their mind, drunk. And then they're like, oh, you stoner. And you're like, um, how's your liver doing? <laughs> yeah, you're like, you're a degenerate. And I'm like, okay, Stacy, you need to calm down here. Okay, sorry at the LCBO, nine o'clock in the morning on Saturday, which is our liquor store, by the way. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. A little shady. That's <laughs> fine. So I do want to ask a couple questions about the tissue culture. It almost, um, I took a uh, cellular biology uh one of these last semesters and when we were talking about like aseptic technique the first thing I thought of was like I wonder if this is kind of like what Atia does when she makes her tissue cultures yeah so um basically the same thing perfect okay so like vented hood everything like that oh I love that like intersection of like cannabis and science I was It was so fun. What do you think has caused like this major resurgence when it comes to tissue culture over the other two alternatives for starting that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, when I started in cannabis in Canada in 2018, the first job I had was a tissue culture lab manager at a medical cannabis facility, and they really wanted to start using tissue culture uh, to produce all of their clones. Now, The problem is that tissue culture is still really new um, and it's not a technology or a technique that's super established. The way that tissue culture works is that even in other crops, it's very cultivar based. And that means that uh, one variety versus the other will not respond the same. So even though people are using it now, I would still say that it's it's still in research phase. It's not like there's a one size fit all tissue culture protocol for every single strain. So typically what happens is you have to go through and develop the protocol for that cultivar. 
individually and try a ton of media recipes to kind of nail it down. So it is quite a bit of work, but the benefit to it is that it really allows you to store your genetics. Now in 2018, 2019, tissue culture was all over. Everybody was very into it. And then when everyone started to realize how much work it was and how long it took to become like a repeatable process they could use for day-to-day production, it sort of died down. We started to see a lot of liquidation of tissue culture labs. We started to see people really backing away from wanting to try it. It's come back again this past year, and I've been getting a lot more requests to consult on these kinds of projects and labs and um, developing these recipes because people have realized that the traditional system of using a mother clone is flawed. We basically keep mothers. We grow them for a certain length of time. Some people grow them as short as four to six months. Some people keep them for up to a year. And during that time, you're continually cloning off of her. And what happens is as she's sitting in the grow room, there are stressors that happen. You know, maybe it's a, it's too hot one day. Maybe watering gets skipped for a week or something happens. Maybe um, there's you know, fungus gnats or some other pest inside of the room or a disease gets in the room or et cetera. So all these little stressors can contribute to epigenetic stress. And basically what that is is environmental stress, which can potentially affect the genetic of the product, right? So it's sort of like shutting things down or, or limiting what's available for the next generation. And when this happens, maybe the mother that you had you know, five years ago that you started off with is not the same mother that you're cloning off of now because you've been using her for four to six months and then creating a new mother from her and then using that for four to six months and then creating a new mother from her for a long period. We have people that have mothers for 30, 40 years that they've basically been cloning off of continuously and creating new mothers from, but the original parent plant was, you know, decades old. So this means that it's going to have maybe some sort of change over time. So with tissue culture, it allows us to keep a smaller subset of that genetic in a clean, aseptic, perfectly you know, suited environment. So there's less chance of that stress happening. So that's one huge reason. And the clones are clean, basically, because they live in an environment where, you know, there's, there's nothing that can really be growing. If anything grows on your plates other than tissue culture, like you trash them. So if you see any mold, if you see any bacteria, it goes in the garbage. So the only thing you retain is the cleanest cuttings possible that have no contamination. That's what you consistently keep over time in your lab. And the second big advantage of that is that a lot of cannabis cultivators do what's called a pheno hunt. And that's very common from seeds. As I mentioned earlier, if you have a cannabis plant produce, you know, 50 seeds, there could be some variability between the two, especially depending on the generation level of that cannabis plant. So how many times has it been crossbred against itself to produce a stable genetic line? And when we get these seeds and there's potential variability, a grower will normally do a pheno hunt. So they might buy 20 seeds of a variety, grow all of them up to the point where they can take clones off of them. So they've created 20 mothers, grow those clones that they've taken from each variety into full flower and then do testing on it. And they might see a difference in THC, you know, up to even 10%. They could see a difference in terpene profiles, et cetera. Based on how each of those individual phenotypes performed, they're going to select which ones they want to move forward with. This is a lengthy process. This is like a six to eight month process by the time you pick Pick your seeds, germinate them, grow them up, cut clones off of those, bring them to full flower, get your test results, go back and fully grow out your mothers. It's a lot of work. If you've just done a pheno hunt and you've maybe selected, you know, 10 or 15 varieties, which is from hundreds of varieties that you've tested and you have limited space in your mother room, it's really not beneficial to keep, you know, 50, 60 of each of these mothers for an indefinite period of time until you need to use the genetic. What's easier is to find that ideal genetic, store it in tissue culture in, you know, plates that are 10 centimeters wide, a nice little stack, keep it in the lab. And then, you know, four or five years down the line, you want to pull it out. Fantastic. I've seen people keep 160 different varieties with a single mother for each in a, in a grow room, basically, on the off chance they want to use one. 
those are going through a ton of epigenetic stress. It's also a lot of money and time to upkeep them. So a couple of advantages, but definitely clean clones and the ability to store genetics have become the reason why a lot of people are saying, you know what, even though it's a lot of work and it costs a lot of money, this is one of the only ways we can keep our genetics clean. We can bank them. And a lot of people have been experimenting with even using tissue culture to remove viruses. So they might have a mother that's gotten infected and they're using tissue culture to create a new set of mothers from her that don't have that virus. So it's really like your uh, genetic cleanup sort of solution. Yeah, I'm thinking like CRISPR almost, but for plants. Yeah, like basically. taking out that virus sequence? Yeah, so um, we would like to use a lot of genetic transformation technologies like CRISPR, but in a lot of places it's not legal. So actually how they take the virus out, we've been seeing a lot of weird techniques, but they use one called thermocycling where they like rapidly increase and decrease heat. Uh, and another one that they're using actually is uh, the idea of basically creating enough explants which is additional cuttings off of the first explant that you took till eventually like out of kind of a genetic lottery, one of them or two of them doesn't have the virus pass on. So it's a very like, yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, so they do the thermocycling to just hopefully denature like that virus protein and be like, well, fingers crossed, like, let's hope it breaks down. Yeah. So like kind of removing, especially of like hop latent virus, which is a huge problem in cannabis. Um, generally speaking, because you have to remember like cannabis was never super legally cultivated uh, on a large scale. So it's not like tomatoes or, you know, any other crop that we have that's had decades of like breeding and, you know, plant programs built for it. So we have a lot of these large scale producers that are people doing a million square foot of cannabis. And it's a crop that no one's really done significant work on for breeding in the sense like breeding for traits of resistance. You know, we haven't bred for resistance to virus. We haven't bred for resistance to pests. Normally in cannabis, especially, we actually breed for higher THC or a higher terpene profile. So um, this kind of selection that normal large-scale agricultural crops have done for you know amount of biomass, for resistance to pests and disease, things like that, those are only kind of now being really gone through and dissected. So cannabis actually has a lot of viruses that have migrated over or have been showing up in the plant because it just wasn't really bred for resistance to that. So um, there's also a ton of very strict requirements when it comes to cultivating cannabis. Some places don't allow you to use any pesticides at all. Some is only organic. Some is, you know, very few. Whereas, you know, our commercial crops that we eat have a lot more dangerous chemicals that are allowed inside of them. Cannabis rules have been very strict. So we have actually limited tools to fight back against these different things. So there's just a huge wealth of research that needs to be done. And one of the things that you can do with tissue culture is do this genetic research on the plants and manipulate their genes and figure out whether or not we can knock in or knock out pieces of DNA to create crops that are, you know, resistant to different types of viruses or different types of fungal infections. Right. I have so many questions. Okay. Number one, did you say that you can keep a sample for four to five years in tissue culture? Yes. What's the longest that you've ever heard of someone keeping a genetic sample? For cannabis, it hasn't been longer than I would say that. But I have heard of people maintaining tissue culture for over a decade. I mean, it's not like you just get to like tuck it away in a corner. You do what's called like a subculturing. So every certain length of time, you would like reopen the plates and transfer it to fresh media. The media mm-hmm. is just this really like nutrient, salt and sugar filled thing that we have the plant growing on. So eventually it will suck all the things out of the media, basically, and you need to add more. So normally if you're doing storage for cannabis, you could do uh, like in tissue culture or any 
any plant and tissue culture. You can look at putting it in an environment where it's not growing as quickly. So that could mean a little bit of a cooler environment, less light. So it's kind of chilling in the corner, basically. And then do your subculturing, you know, every couple of months just to make sure it's always on fresh media and has the nutrients available. We're really doing a very slow, slow growth. Um, there's other options too. Like we've got cryopreservation, which is something that a lot of tissue culture companies are now offering as well. So that means you can store them for however long you want. You know, you're going to yeah. store for 20 years, you could. Oh yeah. That was my, that gosh, you can read my mind. That's my next thing. It's like, are we using cryo to like save these samples at all? That's so interesting. Is there like a certain process that they have to go through to protect the sample from being affected or does it just kind of freeze? No, I mean, I know obviously it freeze because it's like cryo cryoprotected, but is there any um, protection for the preservation step? Yeah, there is a preparation required for cryopreservation. And one of the things that people have been doing a lot of cryopreservation with is artificial seeds. So artificial seeds are basically taking tissue culture explants, um, really small ones, and then basically covering them in sort of like a gelatinous coating. So it, it's it's like sucking it up and then you drop a gelatin bubble around it. So it looks like this transparent, like glossy bubble. And it's got the explant right in the middle and that can be planted directly or that can also be frozen in cryopreservation and kept for a long period of time. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. What do you think is like the biggest user error that occurs during tissue culture? Aseptic conditions, like you said, it is it is crazy how clean everything has to be. So you can't do tissue. I mean, you can try. You can't just do tissue culture in your living room, per se. Any bacteria whatsoever that comes from you breathing, that comes from the air around you, that comes from your pet walking by, because the media is so full of sugar and nutrients, anything will grow, including your explant, which is what you want, but fungus, bacteria, everything else. So getting that level of sterility is very difficult if you don't have a proper lab set. Up. So having a laminar flow hood, which is basically an enclosed area that you work in, the air is coming usually towards you um, across the hood. And that means that you're not breathing on the product. Nothing is really landing on it. There's a continuous airflow passing over the plate towards you to make sure that none of your contamination gets on the product. You have to sterilize your tools. You have to autoclave, which is like a steam heater um, for your media, for your tools, for everything that you do has to be super, super clean. You've got to make sure the vessels you're growing in are clean. You have to make sure that the entire lab is clean. So this level of sterility and aseptic technique is something that when you do tissue culture that you learn, you learn how to hold your hands above the plate. You learn not to lean in when you're doing work. You learn, you know, what's been autoclaved, what hasn't been autoclaved to be very meticulous about it. Sometimes, honestly, I've re-autoclave tools just on the off chance that they were not, you know, done correctly the first time, or it's been too long that they've been sitting in a drawer. So getting used to this behavior and these habits and, and the way you do the work, that's like the hardest thing. When I do training of people for the tissue culture labs, that's what we spend the most time on. I have to kind of help them to sort of visualize everything that I need them. So anything that you've touched, think about the last thing that your gloved hand has touched. Was it sterilized? Nope. Sterilize your hands again. When you're in the hood and you're working and you're about to reach over for the scalpel, don't reach over the plate, reach around the front of the plate and grab the scalpel. So I always like to tell them, like, imagine your plate has a column of light shooting from the bottom of the plate to the top of the hood. You can't pass your hand through it like a laser, for example, just to keep them on really check that nothing should ever be between the airflow and the back of the plate and nothing should ever go the front on top of the plate. Right. Yeah. Having that like circular, everything comes to instead of like over the yes. plate. I think I would be so nervous if I worked in a tissue culture lab that I would just say that to myself, like constantly in my head, just okay, around 
not over. <laughs> this, there are common mistakes that occur um, once the plant is in that like incubation period, or do you feel like a lot of the air comes from that initial process? Definitely in the initial process. So the first phase is called initiation. That's where we're really taking plants straight out of a grow room, for example, which is a very dirty area. So we've cut basically X plants off and your X plant just means like a subsection of a plant. And it can be anything depending on the kind of tissue culture that you do in cannabis. It's very common to do nodal propagation. And that means that we take nodes off of the plant. So a mother plant, for example, and then we actually sterilize them. So they go through a sterilization step. Uh, everyone has their own sterilization protocol. I use a ethanol step followed by a bleach step. Up, and then they're clean and it's time for us to put them in our nutrient rich media. During that phase, you're going to lose a lot of plants because there's going to be ones that didn't quite sterilize correctly. There's going to be ones that there was maybe a little bit of issue when somebody was in the room and there was some kind of bacteria that got on it. It does happen. Like my tissue culture is not 100%. I'm not going to say that I have 0% contamination. There's always some contamination. We just want to keep it as small as possible. Um, after you've kind of gotten the flow of things, and you're doing all your next subculturing steps and manipulating the plant with hormones. That's the main you know, function of tissue culture is to be able to manipulate that explant. So you can actually drive that explant to produce shoots or roots or a callus or whatever you want. And you can do so by adding different hormones to the media. So I mean, that part is not easy. It's a lot of trial and error, especially on a new cultivar where there isn't a whole paper written up exactly on how to do it. That's definitely a difficult part. And that will take some people six months to a year to really develop all of the recipes for their cultivars, especially, I mean, some facilities have like 50, 60 different varieties that they're growing. So that's a lot of work. Um, but the other big area that's a very large challenge is getting them to root and then reestablishing them back into a grow room. So you're taking this plant that's now been living in a lab for a month or two months in this perfectly sterile environment, getting every nutrient it needs with no real need to photosynthesize itself. We actually grow tissue culture plants under 50 to 80 micromoles, which is a very, very low light level because they're not actually doing a lot of their own nutrient generation. They're just sucking it up out of the media. So taking it from that and bringing it into basically the harsh grow room where it's got to fend for itself, it's got to fight off bacteria, whatever else you've got down there, pests, disease, it's being, you know, experiencing a different level of humidity than it's used to. It's experiencing a different temperature than it's used to. Normally you'll grow tissue culture in a very, you know, basically room temperature climate, 24, 25. Your grow rooms can be as hot as, I've seen people as hot as 30. So that's quite a big a big drop. So getting that acclimation is very important. Figuring out how you're going to acclimate them, doing a very slow, you know, movement through. Don't take it from 25 degrees Celsius, just toss it into 30 degrees. Don't take it from um, really, really high humidity and then take it down right away. We try to have a kind of phased approach to that. So we usually bring it inside of a vessel into the grow room, let it acclimate for a little bit, then slowly start cracking the lid on the vessel, let it start to get kind of a taste as it moves on. There's a lot of death that happens during that phase. So getting used to that protocol and, and figuring out what works best for your plants and how you're going to you know, smooth that transition as much as possible is really important. So when you are thinking genetics aside, which of the three methods that you mentioned earlier, so including tissue culture, have the highest level of successful transplant once they're kind of out of like that more baby stage? 
I would say that once the plant has become a successful clone, it's pretty even across the board. So if it's come from mother or it's come from seed or it's come from tissue culture and it's survived the transplant phase, then once they become like they've gone through their, let's say, 14 day clone cycle, um, they're usually about the same. There's not too much difference at that point. They really do behave like other types of plants. There haven't been, I would say, enough large scale trials of tissue culture to really say that it's more beneficial in the, the actual later growth. Some people have have seen increased levels of, of, can, of uh, cannabinoids. Um, but again, it's not like there's been a like a massive, large scientific study, there might be one or two here or there. So it'd be really difficult to say like, concretely, that one of the methods works better than the other. Basically, if you can get any of your plants from regardless of the strategy you use to a clone phase, the success rates pretty much the same. Normally, uh, for mothers, for example, and cloning, we expect about a 10% death rate. That's normally what we, we clone for. So if you have to clone 100 plants uh, that you need, you're going to clone 110, knowing that like 10% is going to die off. Um, and that's kind of a, it's, it's a pretty good margin, to be honest, considering how large some of these batches are, like we would clone for 36,000 plants, and we would clone about 40,000. And you know, 37 or 37 and a half of them would be good quality. And you pick the 36,000 we want to move on to the next phase. These are such large numbers, I can't imagine having my hands in that many samples that sounds so crazy and just like massive scale yeah i mean honestly like my cannabis experience uh, like in the legal market um, before I became a consultant, I worked at an indoor tiered medical facility. So, you know, very, very clean. Everything was very by the book. There was lots of quality assurance. It was very close to pharmaceutical grade. And working in a tiered growing facility that's completely indoor with LEDs, it's a very different environment than the next place that I worked, which was a 1 million square foot cannabis greenhouse. We were dealing with greenhouse, which is different altogether, the way that you yeah. manage the climate, the light, everything else. Um, and then each batch being 36,000 plants and running multiple grow rooms uh, with 36,000 plants. And so um, I wasn't in charge of the head of cultivation there. My very good friend Nate was, but I was in charge of post-harvest processing. And how I got a lot of my experience was it was COVID. We couldn't get any of the original engineers from Holland to fly in because they couldn't enter the country. And so I basically had to commission this brand new state-of-the-art, like multi-million dollar post-harvest area. And I did not have that much experience with this scale. I mean, I think there's a handful of people in the entire world that have experience with that level of scale. And so I didn't have a choice because there was no one else who could do it. So I spent six weeks learning every single machine in there, helping commission everything, doing a lot of awkward Zoom calls with engineers all over the world trying to get things done. And then yeah. processing, I think myself, I probably processed 20 or 25, 36,000 plant harvests. And that's taking all the plants down, bucking all the product, trimming all the product, sorting all the product, drying all the product, packaging all the product, like 8am to 4am, many, many days. And I just learned a lot during that time period. I was the one that calibrated the dry rooms. I was the one that decided on everything, every step of the way. So a lot yeah. of the work that I do is post-harvest strategy because that's a very unique skill set that's not common out there to find someone who can do that many plants and understands really how to scale a lot of that more difficult part of the process. Yeah, and the curing process, there's so many like micro steps within that like final step after you've harvested that are so important that could like make or break it like, yeah, you can make this great product. But if you don't like cure it, trim it nicely, you know, like put those finishing touches on it, you could kind of have like a waste almost, you know. Yeah. And we always try to drill that into people because cultivation is definitely important. Do not get me wrong, but you can spend 12 to 14 weeks cultivating something and you can ruin it in a matter of days in the dry room. If right. you don't get the right conditions, if you don't 
Tremec, like the post harvest processing is such a short period of time, but it's so important for getting the product to the quality that you want. If you do any of those steps wrong or poorly, you could have your whole crop mold over, which means it's going in the garbage. You could over trim or under trim your product, which means your client could reject it. You could over trim it to the point where you've actually decreased potency by a couple percentage if you're not careful. So there's a lot of things that go into that last part of it. And a lot of, um, packaging and some of the the knowledge in that area I actually developed when I was working in the food industry, because there's a lot of very finite, you know, temperature controlled things and humidity controlled things that we do there. And my background is a scientist as well. That makes me somebody who's coming at it from a research perspective. And that's what I do with every client because every grow, every, sorry, every dry room is different. So just because these conditions worked the last time I did a dry room, now you're a different dry room, different HVAC engineer, different types of drying racks, different amount of capacity, different amount of plants going in, different dry cycle, different dry style. I do kind of a full like gauntlet again of doing all the moisture testing and research and checking for hot spots and cold spots in the room and figuring out the airflow and finding the best place to put everything. So I basically do a retrial with every client to develop their perfect cycle for drying cure. Wow. Airflow even. Do you just do that with like a little meter or is it more of like a, you can feel it, you know? Usually it's with a meter, but um, <laughs> normally I take their HVAC drawings and kind of get like a feel for where I should be checking things. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so important and, and dry rooms are one of the things that in most clients I go to, I have to redesign. I don't do the design myself. I work very closely with some fantastic HVAC engineers, but it's just something like if you go to a random HVAC company and you're like, Hey, I want to dry cannabis. They just, they just do whatever. They might not understand the intricacies that, you know, it really depends on, are you doing a hang dry or a tray dry? How much material is going in? How much moisture loss is there? The moisture loss is also not even across the cycle. We actually dry down very heavy in the first couple of days because we want to remove a lot of moisture so the crops don't mold over or have a like, huge proliferation of bacteria. And then the dry down becomes slower. And then some people even keep it in the chambers and do the cure in that way, as opposed to pulling it down and popping it into barrels, for example. So there's a lot of factors and you need to have a lot of information on your process before you design. And normally what happens, they get a generic design for the dry room. Then they want to use this, you know, certain type of dry process. And I go, yeah, your dry room is actually not designed for that. You need to change this, 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 this. So yeah. um, I, I don't know. I just like post-harvest processing. I, I like helping in cultivation as well. But post-harvest processing is definitely one of the areas that super fascinates me. If anyone knows me, you know that I'm not a purse girl. You are not going to catch me dead without my fanny pack, or it's more commonly called a belt bag, I'm pretty sure. I just absolutely love the easy accessibility, and plus I absolutely hate that feeling when you know that your purse is sliding off your shoulder. With that being said, I'm excited to announce that I have officially partnered with an amazing local company, Share Studio. Started right here in Washington, every item is specially curated and a portion of every single purchase is donated back to charity. Charity, such as the Gleason Foundation and their mission to improve the lives of individuals living with ALS. Share Studio offers functionality without even having to sacrifice looks. They offer scrunchies in varying sizes that you personalize with embroidery, along with adorable apparel that will definitely keep you cozy in these cold winter months. So find your next favorite hair accessory and give back to charity by visiting sharestudio.com.co and use code FFSPODCAST for a discount on your order. Again, that's sharestudio.com.co and discount code F-F-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Now back to the show. Since you have experience working internationally in different countries, have you noticed any certain nuances that other countries use? Or do you feel like 
the entire clone to sale process is pretty um, uniform throughout international countries. I would say it's pretty uniform, to be honest. And again, I think that just comes from the fact that cannabis is so new. So a lot of countries coming online are they're just copying the next person that the, like the person next to them they're like what what are you guys doing over there are you doing this yeah. okay we're gonna do that too um so there's not a lot of new things that I'm seeing in different countries but it's really funny to see how each country tackles it from a regulatory perspective so coming from Canada where it's been medically and recreational legal for going on five years this October but it's like nothing bad has happened guys like we haven't had this like huge upswing in like murders or crime or something it's been fine and um, we're not that stringent when it comes to cultivation i would say that we're more stringent than some places and then and quite a bit less stringent than others but there's you know requirements regarding cleanliness reporting and you know managing of waste and stuff like that so i would say like a lot of the cannabis produced in canada is very high quality from a, like from a quality assurance perspective um but then when we look at other countries that are coming at at it from such a strict medical perspective. We've got Germany, for example. So Germany has been medically legal for cannabis for quite some time, but now they're starting to allow more cannabis into the country. They're, they're a big population. They're 80 million people. So it's a large European market. That's really the market that everyone is targeting is trying to get into Germany, but they require that your product comes from a GMP or good manufacturing practice certified facility. Now, for me, that's no problem uh, because I'm a GMP certified auditor and I'm also um, a certified, I just did it in December, my test, but certified pharmaceutical GMP professional. So I really understand GMP and how that applies to cannabis, but it's not a super common thing to find a lot of people around the world who know how to do this. And also, I don't know if it's necessarily needed. Cannabis is something that you light on fire before you use. Does it need to be? you know, meeting this pharmaceutical standard, if it's going to be used as a dry flower, and then in other types and forms where it's used as an oil or a capsule, it goes through an extraction process, which involves treating it with chemicals or heat, um, sorry, chemicals or carbon dioxide. So in both of those steps, you're doing a, a kill step or a reduction of bacteria and mold and things like that. So I don't know if it's the best approach to make these really like, very difficult hurdles for companies to meet GMP is very costly. It's costly to build the facility to that level of quality. It's costly to maintain the facility. There's a lot of extra testing and validation and a lot of work that goes into it, which really limits, like, for example, Germany's not going to have a nice little craft grower from Canada sending them stuff. It's not possible. They would never be able to afford it. So it's really limiting that patient's access to different products around the world. So the biggest thing is definitely like you know, how they want to deal with the regulatory side of things. We've got Thailand, which is right now like almost a total free for all. It's just whatever goes and whatever's being produced is getting out there. You've got Canada that's uh, semi strict, I would say. And then you've got Europe, which is hyper strict. And then in the US, it's like state by state, like every client I have in the US is a completely different ballgame, completely different set of rules. So um, we need to get to a point where there's more of a global strategy, because moving product needs to be a little bit easier. And even yes. something like the moisture content, Germany wants 10%, most other countries want 12 to 14. So um, we need to get on the global cannabis supply chain one day and establish a standard that works for everybody around the world so that we can kind of have more people getting more access to products. Right. What do you think would be some of the primary benefits from the like globalization of, of cannabis? I think the establishment of a global supply chain, just like in any other industry that's like a consumer packaged good or a CPG industry, it just allows us to really maximize the strengths in different areas and not have countries take on things that really aren't their strong suits or things that 
are costing them a lot of money when they could be doing it somewhere else. So, I mean, what that ends up being is eventually lower price products all over the place. So let's say one country is really fantastic at cultivation because they have the perfect weather for it and they have, you know, a lot of labor that can do that. Fantastic. Well, they're able to make a lot of the biomass, which can then go to another country that is fantastic at extraction, which can then, you know, move along to another country that's great at making edibles. So it just really allows us to you know, not just say everything has to be grown, packaged, processed here, we can really move the product around a little bit more. And that allows us to really just take advantage of everyone's different skill sets. And so one thing I'm working on this year is I really want to start to kind of help with the development of that global specification for cannabis. Um, So I'm working with a couple other key partners uh, in the industry to develop a like global cannabis quality assurance association so that there is sort of a central kind of like, I guess, hive where people can come, you know, if you're a new emerging market and you need guidance on regulatory or you want to have people who are experts in the area help design your system, we can tell you from lessons learned by this country and this country and this country, what would be good and what would not be a good idea. And then if you're you know, looking to eventually establish global standards, that can still be, again, with stakeholders from all over the world, agreeing upon what we would like to see as a central standard so we can move product everywhere. Wow. Congratulations. That is quite a feat to take on. Holy cow. Yeah, it's going to be a busy year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, how do you have the time to do all of this? Do you think that like a global agency, I don't want to say like the United Nations, I don't think that's like exactly what I'm thinking of, should be in charge of handling like a globalization initiative? Or what do you think would be the best way to approach globalizing? I would say that the World Health Organization is probably one of the top candidates that would be the person to put a global cannabis standard in place. We would be like an agency, like our organization would be kind of like working with them just to advise and give some like, hey, this is what we think the moisture content should be. Hey, we think this kind of testing should be required. Hey, we think like this would be what we would consider a high THC. These are the types of chemotypes and product categories, things like that. So um, like I know the World Health Organization already has a lot of standards that we use already for you know cannabis and cultivation. Global Agricultural Collection Practices, or GACP, comes from them, for example. So they would be the people, I think, that would develop an international standard that everyone could agree on. Okay. Yeah, I had put down in my notes, I'm like, like United Nations? I was like, no, not like United (laughs) Nations. Not like the UN at all. Um, What do you think, or I guess I should say, where do you think would, are there certain countries that you're already like, oh, definitely Spain for cultivation. And I definitely think Germany for extraction. Like, are there already countries who are kind of coming out as these leaders in certain parts of the process that you think would be best suited for each step? I think that countries that are with a hotter climate um, are fantastic for well, I say biomass in general, because as a scientific term, which means basically like any biological material. But um, in the cannabis industry, the term biomass is typically used for what we call extraction grade products. So product that's not flower grade or super nice nugs we want to see in containers, things that go into pre-rolls, they go into um, edibles, they go into oils, they go into capsules. So biomass production in that sense, it I think is really heavily going to come from Southeast Asia and South America in the future because of the climate because of the like cost of labor, of course, um, and the fact that like they can grow year round. And outdoor in Canada, you can do one season. There's not multiple seasons in Canada for growing. You only have May till October, that's it. Other countries where they can grow across multiple seasons where they can do staggered, you know, starting a new grower every month for a length of time, depending on where they're located, that 
means that they get to take advantage of the environment doing a lot of their lighting and everything else that they need. When we have to do this indoor, it's extremely expensive. It's costly. An indoor facility, the electricity, everything else that's associated with it, it's very expensive. On a cost per gram basis, nothing beats outdoor. No greenhouse or indoor facility that I've seen can compete with an outdoor crop when it comes to cost per gram. So if we're looking at getting cheaper inputs to make these finished products like vapes and everything else, then those are the countries that are going to be able to do that. As of right now, there are some South American uh, countries that have cannabis facilities. I'm like, you know, friends with a facility owner in Uruguay, I know a facility owner in Argentina, they're working towards their GMP certifications, things like that. So they're going to be able to ship their product into Germany. And, and when that happens and, and ship them into Switzerland and anywhere else, and they're shipping them into extractors who are making these final products. If I was an extractor buying biomass, I wouldn't buy it from, let's say, Canada where I'm buying mostly indoor and greenhouse product and the cost per gram is quite high. I'm going to buy it from the cheapest source with the same potency and the same terpenes, right? So um, usually outdoor won't have as high terpenes, but there is also the possibility of redistilling extra terpenes in. So in the global future, future, maybe 10 or 15 years down the line, I really see South America, Southeast Asia and Africa as well as coming online. There has been some production in Africa happening recently. Um, those being the country and India, I've actually also heard that India is coming online as well. So um, those are going to be the places you're going to be seeing a lot of the biomass coming. Now, the premium flower grade stuff, the part that I find so funny about people in cannabis, especially if they're not cannabis users themselves, which is no problem, but if they don't really understand the cannabis culture, um, because a good chunk of the people that are buying cannabis are cannabis like connoisseurs, let's say, or they're, they've been users for a very long time. So it doesn't make sense to maybe somebody coming from the pharmaceutical industry who's not super familiar with cannabis or the culture around it. You know, I've had this question asked before, why does it matter what size the bud is? Doesn't it, isn't it the bud that's three centimeters, the same THC and terpenes as the bud that's one centimeter? And I said, yeah, of course, it's pretty much the same. And they're like, but why does it matter? Why do they want the big ones? And I'm like, because everybody wants to open a jar and see a big nug. And they're like, I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Like, It's like an aesthetic thing. Yeah, but normally when you look at any other product that's a pharmaceutical product, I don't want to open a jar of Tylenol with different size Tylenol and be like, oh, the big one. Like you want to have. Yeah, I want this. The, the big Tylenol. We want to have consistency and uniformity. So it's such a unique product because there's definitely going to be people who are not maybe familiar with, you know, long term cannabis use or, or who aren't into cannabis culture. And those patients may not care as much. They might be OK with all of the nugs in the jar being one centimeter and being homogenous. But then you've got other users where you know, BC craft cannabis and Cali cannabis will always hold some weight. The name and the association and the history and Humboldt and those kinds of terms will yeah. always hold some weight. And there's going to be other people that come in and don't care where the cannabis came from. But um, I think we're always going to have premium craft cannabis brands from these countries where they've really been associated with a long history of producing good product. So, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be like a craft cannabis brand out of China because it's not, to my knowledge, a country that's ever been associated with cannabis production. But I think that we'll always have these like premium brands coming in from North America where there's been a very long and, you know, for example, the Netherlands would be another one where it's like an area that has a lot of cannabis history. And that country would hold a lot of weight in the name of the product or the branding of the product. Right. It's just like wine or champagne. Like you want champagne from France, but you want your cannabis to be as close to like humble and murder mountain as possible. You know, it's there's a certain like respect that's paid to tradition and culture. 
hundred percent. And the cannabis culture is very strong. And a lot of people who aren't familiar with it do not understand why it is. Um, but it's just something that's been around for a super long time. I told them like, look, like I am a scientist. I a thousand percent understand that the buds that are one centimeters and the buds that are three centimeters have the same trichome density. And the trichome density is what really determines the amount of cannabinoids in the terpene. Like, I know that on paper, but if you gave me the option of option A, the exact same weight, but smaller buds and option B, exact same weight and bigger buds. I'm going to take option B. I can't explain. I'm going to break it up and put it in a joint. I understand that, but I can't explain it. This is what I want. People want to see big buds. People want to be able to cup them in their hands. And I know that we're, he's like, I don't understand it's here. You're going to grind it up. I'm like, I know that. Don't think I don't know that. It's not something I can explain, but from being a cannabis user for like 15 years, I just, this is how I, this is how my brain works. This is what I want. Yeah. I can choose between the two. And nobody wants to like go to a party and like be smoking with their friends and they're like, oh, you have popcorn nugs. Like popcorn nugs are like a, I don't even know what kind of word. They're like a mean word or like a word. It's like uncool. It's like I my my boyfriend and I like we're joking we were talking about like growing up what kind of snacks we brought and I'm Trinidadian and I was born in Trinidad and raised in Canada but my parents got me Canadian snacks they got me Dunkaroos they got me you know like Cheez-Its and whatever but his parents he was born in Canada but they're Serbian and they were like you're gonna be Serbian so he would get sent to school with like a, a bag full of dried figs and I'm like you're the weird kid at school that brought dried figs like that's yeah. like the <laughs> party and I've got Dunkaroos and I'm like you're the weird kid all right like I've got the Dunkaroos I've got the big nugs yeah it's like a status thing yeah (laughs) that's such a perfect analogy for it too okay so one last question if we lived in a world with cannabis globalization do you think that it should be legal to fly with cannabis 100 percent Perfect. Yes, me too. I'm like, if people can drive or fly with like bottles of tequila from Mexico like it's no different. In Canada, you can fly like domestically. So sometimes like I fly from like Toronto to Montreal and I always forget that you can bring cannabis because I'm always like so paranoid about it because I fly internationally mostly. And then in the airports, it's like, it's okay to fly with cannabis if you're domestic. And I'm like, all you got to do is like say that you have it or something. And I was like, oh, I forgot we can do that. But yeah, I mean, people move all kinds of stuff across. I bring prescription drugs with me when I travel. I bring back rum for my grandma from Cuba. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of maybe over over parenting that happens with cannabis even in Canada we have to have cannabis stores where you can't see inside like no children could possibly look at it and all this stuff and it's like I remember being as a child in the beer store with my dad and that was fine but I can't bring my kid with me in to buy a joint so there's a lot of like stigma still around it but eventually I think that it should be treated the same way that you treat alcohol and so that means you should be able to do exactly what you want with it enjoy it on the patio enjoy it with dinner uh, move it around the world if you need to. Yep. I totally agree. All the frosted windows and then they put the decals on the windows and you're like, Oh, I don't really like that. It, it makes <laughs> it look like kind of corny, but it's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Atia, I can't thank you enough for allowing me to take your time and teaching me so much about what you do and what you're passionate about. I just want to take a moment of appreciation for your time, but also like the little friendship we've grown to. I just, I think the world of you. Oh, thanks so much. I'm so glad to come back and chat. And I just also wanted to like catch up with you and see what was going on. And it's been such a great like thing to see your podcast kind of grow and all the cool guests you've had on. You've had so many awesome women on as well, which is fantastic to just see about different people's life journeys and what they're up to. And it kind of makes you feel like even though I travel so much and I'm alone a lot of the time uh, that I have sort of this like other network of other people that have been on your show as like other like friends. And I've actually chatted with quite a few of them and they're all amazing. 
Oh my gosh, I love that. It's just the for folks sake community all just comes yeah. together. It becomes <laughs> like a conglomerate almost. Well, thank you so much. Uh, safe travels if you're traveling soon. Thanks, Paige.